Church family, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Romans this morning, chapter 1. We have been looking really at the introduction to what has been called the greatest letter ever written in the book of Romans. So, in the introduction so far, we've seen that it focuses on Paul's authority in verses 1 through 7. He says, hey, here's why you should listen to me. I'm a man sent by God. I have a message from God. I'm an apostle of God. He establishes authority, not because, again, he's on a power trip, but because he wants to be heard. And then in verses 8 through 15, Paul puts his heart out on his sleeve. We see here that he has a gospel-shaped heart. He's a thankful man, a prayerful man, an encouraging man, and a man who wants to get to Rome to strengthen them specifically with the gospel. He's ready to preach the gospel. And so... If verses 1 through 7 introduces us to Paul's authority, 8 through 15 introduces us to Paul's heart, verses 16 through 17 introduces us to Paul's gospel. They give us the truth in a nutshell that will be unpacked for the rest of the book. They represent, they represent the heart of the good news of Christianity. And so let me read to you this instruction from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now our text, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Forever. Let's go and thank Him for His word this morning. Father, we, we ask that You would take this portion of Scripture that has been used so mightily in the lives of your saints already. But Lord, that it would come home to the heart of dear brothers and sisters here today. Lord, we pray that this word would invade the heart of not only those who are here who are your people, but even more so the ones who are here that are not yet your people. Lord, if we're here this morning as Christians, and it's been years since we can remember being affected by your gospel, we ask you that we would not go another day without being touched by the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
restore our first love, Father. Revive us again. Speak to us of your love exclusively from your gospel. We pray you would do this, especially through all of our weakness. That you would come with your strength. That you would make my words clear. Would you set a guard over the door of my mouth that I might not sin against you and dig out ears for people to hear you in the inner being so we might serve you in our spirit. We ask and pray this all in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really give us four looks at the life of Jesus. They give us complementary life stories where we're allowed to gaze at Jesus and look at exactly who he was. The fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, lets us look at the early church, the group, the community, the body of Christ that was formed by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And one of the things as you read through the book of Acts that you absolutely cannot miss was how those Christians were shameless in the proclamation of the gospel. They were fearless, bold. They were unstoppable in their desire to tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the reason why Christianity spread throughout the known world in a matter of over hundreds of years is because you had the leaders of the church and the people of the church all shamelessly declaring the gospel. Sure, they got scared sometimes. They began to tremble in their boots as they were threatened. But, but when they were threatened, listen to their prayers. In fact, Acts chapter 4, verse 29 records one of those prayers. It says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Then just two verses later, they got exactly what they prayed for. In verse 31 of Acts 4, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This, again, is the reason why Christianity spread throughout the known world like wildfire, because the seamless boldness and confidence of the early Christians. Now, in our passage this morning, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, we see some of that contagious boldness. We hear the Apostle Paul exclaim, uh, proclaim, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It was his highest joy. He didn't want to put it under a rock. He wasn't embarrassed by it. God had become his glory and the lifter of his head. And he loved nothing more than to tell other people the gospel. In fact, in verse 15, we saw this last week. He says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now there, he, he probably meant the church, but, but there's also implication he wanted to preach those outside the church. And the reason he wanted to do this is simply because he was not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I know many of you have probably felt this, maybe not every day, but, but I certainly hope that there have been days in your Christian life where you just simply couldn't get to your phone fast enough to, to call a friend, or, or you couldn't hand out a, a tract fast enough, or you couldn't just get with someone over a cup of coffee fast enough to tell them about the gospel quickly enough. There have been times in the life of anyone who I believe has tasted the ministry of the Spirit in their heart where they have felt the desire, the compulsion, and the love of Christ to share the gospel shamelessly. But then... There's been those times where even though we won't want to be, 
we find ourselves deeply embarrassed by the gospel. We find ourselves ashamed of the gospel. We may be like Peter who said, even though they all abandon you, Lord, I'm going to stand up for you. And then we find ourselves like Peter saying, I never knew this man, denying the Lord who loves us. Or, perhaps more commonly in our culture, what we simply do is we find ourselves silent when we should be speaking up. We find ourselves embarrassed of what we might look or sound like if we openly, shamelessly, and confidently proclaim the gospel. And so, look, let let me just tell you what my goal is here this morning. My goal is not in any way, shape, or form to increase the guilt you feel for having been ashamed of the gospel. In fact, most Christians need no help in that department. My goal this morning is not to increase any sense of condemnation you feel for being too silent about the gospel. My goal is to simply ask the question, how do we reclaim this bold confidence? How do we reclaim this sweet shamelessness we see in the early church? How do we reclaim this in our day? How do we come to a place where we can say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What's important we think about this, isn't it? Because you and I, we live in a world that constantly is finding new ways to shame you. Particularly to shame you for shamelessly proclaiming the gospel. That's actually always the way the world has been. When Paul preached the gospel to the Jews, they said, there's not enough miracles here. We want signs. And the center of this whole gospel, by the way, is a a king who gets crucified under a curse from God. To the Jews, the Bible says the gospel was foolishness. Or to the sophisticated philosophical Greeks who wanted wisdom, Paul presented the gospel to them of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And they called him a babbler. Been called that before. They thought he had some novel ideas, but, but nothing worth risking your life for. Nothing worth banking your whole existence on. So in the modern world, in our day, men have come along saying, look at this gospel with its virgin births, its triune gods, and a Jesus who turns water into wine. It's not scientific enough or or rational enough. And, And of course, what they do is they heap shame on those who would believe such things. But but in our day, the shift seems to be that the shaming is coming from the morality of gospel. And what the morality of the gospel produces. You mean you're still part of this backward culture that believes that sex is only for one man and one woman in marriage? You're part of this ancient, antiquated, Neanderthal culture where you still believe that the gender that is part of your body when you are born is for life and not just who you feel like you are at any moment? What kind of backwards person are you, you caveman? You you missed the curve in history. You miss the progress in man. Again, the world would shame us for believing this gospel. And I want you to know, in the midst of this barrage of the many different ways the world will find us to shame us, even in our lifetime, how do you come to a place where you're able to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and salvation? How do you get there? And even, probably more importantly, how do you stay there? My answer to that question is this. The way to overcome shame in the gospel is through, wait for it, the gospel. (laughs) Notice the Apostle Paul says, he doesn't say, I'm not ashamed for the gospel, for I'm an extrovert and I have no filter. Right? Whatever comes to my mind is that guy that always says exactly what he's thinking, that's always who I've been. No, the power of the gospel is not that extroverts will carry it forward. 
Notice the, the power of the Apostle Paul does not say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I'm an alpha male. And whatever room I walk into, I just take charge. No. You could have said that about Peter, by the way, but there was ever an alpha male always walking to the front of the crowd. It was Peter. But look, Peter in his own strength was ashamed of the gospel. Notice also the Apostle Paul doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of my superior education. Education, though it may be helpful to answer objections, will not keep you from being ashamed of the gospel. In fact, some of those who have been most susceptible to being ashamed of the gospel are those who have received depth of education and the knowledge of the gospel. We need to remember that, that when those outside the church saw the boldness of the first preachers, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. They recognized their boldness did not come from their education, but from the time they had spent with the Lord Jesus Christ. So boldness, shamelessness, and joyful, confident proclamation, it doesn't come to extroverts, to alpha males, or to those who are educated. It comes to those who know the gospel. That's Paul's logic, isn't it? I remember back, I think probably year two of a a youth pastor, I remember trying to illustrate this at a youth camp one year, and I I said, just imagine a guy comes to a race, and, and one guy is one of those little Austin Mini Coops, right? And another guy has a, has a Ford Mustang with a V12. Do you think the guy with a Mustang would be ashamed of his ride right before the race? No, he's not ashamed of his ride because his, his ride is full of power. So he knows he's going to beat that Austin Mini. And I had, I had this 13-year-old kid who came up to me afterwards and just responded, but what if you put the V12 in the Austin Mini? <laughs> but, and think about that. It's a great illustration, Right? Because you get that Austin Mini and you're like, what are you doing bringing that thing to a race? You should be ashamed of that little toy car and its sewing machine engine. But the guy goes, I know there's a V12 under there. And I know this thing's going to fly. So even though the gospel looks like it couldn't overpower anything, nonetheless, the gospel tells us that it is the power of God. And so there is no need to be ashamed of it. So what Paul does in these two verses, he explains to us, what the gospel is, and why Paul is not ashamed. So the first thing we need to ask, if we're not going to be ashamed of the gospel, is what is the gospel? And Paul lays it out for us very clearly. The gospel is the power of God. What is the gospel? The the power of God. There's no need to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. The text says it very clearly. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. And one thing, if you've ever read the Bible, that God makes clear from Genesis to Revelation is that He has all power. He speaks, and the earth is formed. He says, let there be light, and there is. He speaks the stars, and they all burn instantly until He says, go dark. He has all power. On top of that, He exerts over all His creation in power, which is why when the people of Israel were slaves, powerless in Egypt, God can say to the Red Sea, part. He can march the army into that Red Sea, and God can say to that same sea, come back. Because this God has all power over His creation. And what we're told is that in the Gospel, God has exerted His power far beyond any deliverance in ancient Israel. In fact, we're going to read in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, when we get there, these words. But but God be thanked 
that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Friends, that is power. To take people who cannot quit sinning and make them not want to sin. To in fact make them slaves of righteousness so they cannot continue in sin because they're driven by a burning compulsion to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That is power. And listen, it's power that Paul didn't just know theologically or theoretically, but he knew it practically. I mean, this is the man who in one city, in one city preached the gospel and a jailer was saved, a fortune teller was saved, a rich businesswoman was saved. People from all over different walks of life were saved when this power came upon them. And and I'm here to tell you this morning, if you're here right now going, man, I, I really like it when he preaches the gospel. It's because you've been the subject of this almighty power. The God who hovered over heaven and earth has hovered over your soul and said, let there be light and there was light. His power was exerted over you and made you a new creation. That's what's in the gospel. It's the very power of God. But we we need not just ask, what is the gospel? We also need to ask, why is the gospel? What is the gospel? The power of God. Why is the gospel? It's to salvation. Why the gospel? To salvation. <clears throat> I just did that thing where I took a sip of water and then I breathed the wrong, at the wrong time. And there's probably a cough coming somewhere in there, so be prepared for that. <clears throat> oh, that was the worst. Okay. Why has God exerted this power from not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For it is the power of God to salvation. The power of God. Listen, I love this. The power of God has not just been released in some random way. Right? Like, like God makes a plug-in available and, and whatever you want to put in it, you can have power. But the power of God has been put in a specific way so that he's using his power to save. Now, as I say that, salvation is one of those things we really need to think a lot about, right? You know, there are some words and phrases that just take on a lot of different meanings. In fact, I was thinking about this this week as I thought about this topic. You might remember the conversation in The Hobbit between Gandalf and Bilbo Baggins, right? Where, where Bilbo taught us there's a lot of, actually Gandalf teaches there's a lot of different words, uh, different meanings to the term good morning. In, in the text, J.R.R. Tolkien says, good morning, said Bilbo, and he meant it. The sun was shining and the grass was very green. But Gandalf looked at him from under long bushy eyebrows that stuck out farther than the brim of his shady hat. What do you mean, he said. Do you wish me a good morning or mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or that you feel good this morning or that it is a morning to be good on? Good morning can be taken a lot of different ways, but friends, so can salvation. There there are many more church buildings where many more seats that are packed even more than we are this morning where people are being told about salvation. But that salvation is primarily a salvation from poverty and sickness. It's a salvation through present health and wealth. That's not the kind of salvation we're talking about this morning. For many people, salvation is just it's finding love. It's interesting, the earliest rock and roll songs were just often charismatic hymns where the name of Yahweh was replaced by the name of a girl. And of course, that's, that's even where much of the music still goes today. But the idea is, if you can find love, sex, or something that will arouse you, then you've found salvation. 
people paint salvation in so many things, as so many things. But in the Bible, salvation is salvation from sin. Primarily, the salvation is from the wrath of a holy God for our sin. The primary problem that the Bible addresses is that we as humans have sinned against the holy God. We've rebelled. God has commanded us with his law and we have disobeyed us, obeyed him, excuse me. He has called us to worship him alone and we have instead worshiped created things rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. And the Bible refers to this act as sin. And this is exactly what we need to be saved from. It's God's holy anger, righteous wrath against our sin. In fact, I'll put it this way. We need to be saved from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. Thankfully, the book of Romans deals with all of these. From the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. It talks about the penalty of sin and defines it for us in Romans chapter 2 when it tells us in verse 5, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We are under the penalty of sin, but we're also under the power of sin. It says in Romans chapter 3 verse 9, For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. That is, they can't quit sinning. They are under its power and we have been subjected also, finally, to the presence of sin. That is, the world is full of sickness and suffering. I'm reminded of that. Listen to this in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. I can't wait to unpack that whole section of scripture for you, but it's in Romans 8. So stay by the year 2030 and we'll be there. Um, But you get the picture here, right? Just just highlight in that text words like suffering, futility, bondage, corruption, pangs. We are under the penalty of sin. We are under the power of sin without Christ. And we live now painfully in the presence of sin. But what the book of Romans goes on to tell us is that God has met each one of those needs. Christ has dealt with definitively to our penalty of being under sin. And that he gives us his righteousness so we can be forgiven. To the power of sin, he gives us regeneration so we can live above the power of sin in the power of the Spirit. And to the presence of sin, he gives us the resurrection where we will go be with him. Where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more corruption, nothing like that anymore. And so all that condemns us that we need to be saved from, the gospel according to Paul, the answer is to bring in righteousness, regeneration, and resurrection. So needing to be saved from the penalty, power, and presence of sin, the Lord provides that with righteousness, regeneration, and resurrection. So the Apostle Paul tells us, not only what the gospel is, it is the power of God, but he also tells us why the gospel. It is for salvation. But then the Apostle tells us who the gospel is for. And the answer to that is everyone who believes Who is the gospel for? 
everyone who believes. He tells us who the people of the gospel are. For it is the power of God, he says, to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, that one little line, for everyone who believes, already ought to be nudging and provoking us to think that this, this whole idea that all religions are the same can't possibly be true. It can't. You can study every religion on earth as in-depth as you want, and you will not find one where salvation depends on faith alone, on what you believe. In every religion in the world, you will find at their center, it's what you do. It's the works you accomplish. That's how you come into salvation. In Islam, you must follow the five pillars. In Buddhism, you must follow the eightfold path. In Catholicism, you'll receive grace, but that grace had better produce enough good works in order for you to earn your way toward righteousness and toward heaven. There's, there's none that just starts with, you believe in someone else and what they've done. You put your trust in the work of another. But here, the, gospel, or the Apostle Paul tells us that the gospel is for everyone who believes. Have you ever thought about what faith is? Have you thought much about what it is to believe? The North American church is full of unbelievers because preachers and people have thought so little about what true saving faith is. They have reduced it to a mere decision, to mere mental assent, to to knowing some set of facts. So you have people who've made a decision but have never been saved. They have not known the power of the gospel. And so what is it to believe? Well, one of the finest definitions I've ever heard from comes from the great Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle. He describes faith like this. He says, saving faith is the hand of the soul. The sinner is like a drowning man at the point of sinking. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ holding out help to him. He grasps it and is saved. That is faith. Saving faith is the eye of the soul. The sinner is like the Israelite bitten by the fiery serpent in the wilderness. And at the point of death, the Lord Jesus Christ is offered to him as the brazen serpent set up for his cure. He looks and is healed. This is faith. Saving faith is the mouth of the soul. The sinner is starving for lack of food and and sick of a severe disease. The Lord Jesus Christ is set before him as the bread of life and the universal medicine. He receives it and is made well and strong. This is faith. Saving faith is the foot of the soul. The sinner is pursued by a deadly enemy and is in fear of being overtaken. The Lord Jesus Christ is put before him as a strong tower, a hiding place, and a refuge. He runs into it and is safe. This is faith. Beloved, this is the message we preach. Christ has offered to all. If you can see him, you might just look to him with trust and he will save you. If you understand who he is as he's revealed himself in his word, then you must run to him and he will receive you. If you open your mouth, he'll fill it because he says, I'm the bread of life. He's the one who offers himself freely. And listen, this is important. We don't gain any merit simply by taking a bite. We, we don't take in any merit by walking to Him. We acknowledge that all of our salvation is in Him and we therefore trust in Him completely. And I really believe that, that this view of faith makes evangelical Christianity the only religion that passes what I call the deathbed test. Every other religion or philosophy is absolutely and utterly useless at the deathbed. 
Take some of the ancient Greek philosophies that promised that if you've, you've lived a great and noble life, that when you died, your name would be immortalized. But what do you say to the man at his deathbed who hasn't lived a great and noble life? No one will remember his name. You have nothing to say to him at his deathbed if Greek philosophy is all there is. What do the Muslims say to that man on his deathbed? In Islam, you go to paradise if your good works outweigh your bad. What do you say to the man whose bad works have clearly outweighed his good and only has five minutes left to live? You've got nothing to say to that man. What does even the Catholic priest have to say to that man right before dying? He may forgive him of some of his sins, but still because he can't give him assurance that there's a finished work that pays for all of his sins, all that he can hope for is in purgatory he will eventually cleanse himself from all weaknesses and get to heaven. Friends, only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can come to the deathbed of a man who has lived an absolutely rotten and wicked life and say to him, a vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. You must just believe. You must just rest in him, trust in him, look to him. And when you do, you will be saved to the uttermost. You Christian parents of children... We even dedicated today, listen, this is such a thing to take in because it takes such incredible wisdom to raise children in a Christian home, doesn't it? See, this is just something we're dealing with right now. Our kids are at this kind of what we would call the decision age and we're thinking through the gospel. Look, we want to see our children saved. Pray every single day, Lord, save them. And yet there's this balance because the last thing we want to do is give them false assurance. So we have to have wisdom We have to recognize if our kids want to talk about Jesus in a Christian home, that doesn't mean they're saved. It means that they're simply of reasonable intelligence. If they even have a sense of what is right and what is wrong, that doesn't mean they're saved. It just means they have a conscience. We must look for in our children one thing and one thing only. Trust in the Lord Jesus Leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ, resting their souls in Him, recognizing their hopelessness and believing in Him. Yes, when we're watching kids grow up, we need to watch for the fruit of faith. We may need to take a season where we watch them grow up in the faith. But do not confuse your children by telling them that what makes them a Christian is their good works or that they've finally grown up enough. That makes salvation for children more complicated than it even is for their parents. You must call your children to believe, trust, rest, run, look, see, taste, to take a hold of Christ. And when a child says, I see my sin and rest my soul in the Savior or whatever childish version of that they say, then you may watch for fruit. But do not get them focused on fruit. Get them looking over and over again to the Savior who would be trusted Friends, we've seen what the gospel is. It's the power of God. We've seen why the gospel is. It's for salvation. We've seen who the gospel is for. It's for everyone who believes. Now we must see what the gospel contains. What does the gospel contain? What contains the righteousness of God? Oh, I thought that was me. Sorry. I don't know why I would have a, a baby nursery toy in my pocket at some point, making noise, but okay. The righteousness of God for, 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's verse 17. This is important. There's, there's a lot of debate about what this phrase, from faith to faith, means. It probably just means from first to last, it's all about believing. Right? It's by faith alone. It tells us that what is in the gospel is the righteousness of God. What does that phrase mean? Well, here's the thing. Getting this phrase wrong is going to bring absolute misery to your soul. In fact, there was a monk in the 1500s who, just, who got this phrase wrong. Got a lot of things right, but got this phrase wrong. A man by the name of Martin Luther was a, was a pious man, a very, very good monk. He would have been the type of guy that would have been up for sainthood. He was confessing night and day, trying to live a holy life, and yet had no assurance of salvation. And he, he said this phrase, the righteousness of God, tormented him because he understood it to mean the righteousness which God requires. The, the righteousness which you and I must perform in order to be acceptable before God. Now, look, here's why this is confusing, right? Because make no mistake, are we called to be righteous? Yeah. But, but that's not the good news that's been spoken of in verse 17. The righteousness here is not a righteousness you give to God. Like, how in the world could that be described as good news? Hey, I've got good news for you. If you're perfectly righteous, you'll go to heaven. There's no good news there. So, so Martin Luther understood this phrase wrongly. And in recent years, many scholars have come along and said, no, really the righteousness of God is an, is an Old Testament term that means the saving activity of God. If you look at all these Old Testament verses, sure enough, God's righteousness is, in fact, his saving activity. But, but to me, that hardly gets to the whole heart of the matter. Right? Once you've established God's righteousness is his saving work, my question, therefore, would be, which work? What does he do to save us? The whole answer of the whole book of Romans is he gives us a righteousness that we could not create in ourselves. That he imputes it to us. That he reckons it to our account. He gives us the righteousness that we can never earn. That's the whole argument from the book of Romans. And so Romans 1.17, notice something there. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And so we see that it's something revealed, right? Then, here's what's happening. In Romans 3.21, Paul, not surprisingly, almost says the exact same thing in verse, what, 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe. That sound familiar? For there is no difference... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says back in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, there's a righteousness revealed. In Romans 3.21, he gets to another bracket and he says, there's righteousness revealed. Well, guess what he does in the middle? Guess what he does from Romans 1.17 or 1.18 to 3.21? He says there's a righteousness needed. In fact, look at Romans chapter 1. Just start at verse 18. It says there's something else revealed. For the wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He says all mankind is unrighteous. They don't have a righteousness. Then, as if he's concluding his argument, in Romans 3, he says, not only are they all unrighteous, but they could never get 
a righteousness. Romans 3, verses 9 through 11. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. You see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, look, there's a righteousness revealed. There's a righteousness needed. And then he comes back in Romans 3.21 and says, there's a righteousness that's revealed again. And he makes it abundantly clear in Romans 5.17 that not only is this righteousness revealed, not only is it, is it a righteousness that's needed, but it's a righteousness that's gifted. He calls it, he refers to it as the gift of righteousness. It's something that God gives to us. It's the same righteousness he talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you understand this is pivotal? Listen, the Christian life is one where you've been given a righteousness. Well, did I work hard enough for it? No. You believe God, receive it, and he gives you his uh, the most marvelous story in the Bible regarding this is the story of Joshua and the high priest. And in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the high priest, who actually is representing God's people, he's standing before God and he is absolutely covered in filthy garments. In fact, the Hebrew tells us that he's covered in dung. Just to give you a visual there. His garments are stained. And, and symbolically, it's to represent that he's, he's symbolically stained by sin. And at that courtroom scene, Satan is there accusing him of sin. And look, not unjustly, because he really is a sinner. But it says in Zechariah 3 that that God takes all of those garments off. All of that garbage and all of that dung. And he puts new, clean clothes on Joshua so that he can stand before God righteous. Friends, that's the gospel. It will save you, and it begins its saving work by giving you your greatest need. That which you do not have, the righteousness of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So someone here might say, well, that's great, Cody. I I, I want righteousness by faith, but my faith is so little. How do I know I have this righteousness if my faith is not strong? Well, you simply remember the Lord Jesus Christ is your righteousness, not your faith. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of His. The strength of the God-man and His perfect righteousness. And so some of you will say, listen, I I felt the joy of justification before. All these things you're saying, I I felt that joy before. I felt how sweet it is to be justified before God, but but I don't feel it now. And and since I don't feel it, I must not have it. I I, I want to conclude the story of an old English convert. I love it. He He was saved and he had great joy. But then maybe like you, he lost that joy when he lost the feeling. And one day he, he met the preacher who led him to the Lord. And the preacher simply asked him, he said, do you have a quarter in your pocket? Or whatever the British version of that is, I guess a pound, right? Is that right? You don't know. All right. All right. Let's go with a quarter. We're American here. We're just going to do what we always do and override everything. All right. He, he took this quarter out of his pocket and he showed it to the preacher and the preacher said, how much is that quarter worth? He said, it's worth a quarter. He said, 
Do you feel it there in your hand? Yes, I do. Okay, well, now put it in your pocket. So he did. He asked, do you feel it at all? I do not feel it. But what's it worth? It's worth a quarter. It it remains the same, whether felt or not. Friends, there are days when we will feel the sweetness of Christ. But then there are days when those feelings are gone. And yet His righteousness remains unchanged. You just hold on to it with your big or little faith, whatever God gives you. But you do look, you run, and you go to Him. And His righteousness is yours. And it will save you from your sin. I want us to have just a moment of reflection here. We let this word wash over us. We're going to come to the invitation at the time of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is going to serve as our invitation today. Why? Because it is the the response to the Word of God. It it calls us to to dig deep inside ourselves to first recognize whether or not we are a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, listen, hear the beauty of the Gospel this morning. That by repentance and faith, you simply place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and He gives you the gift of your righteousness. That can be yours. Listen, there's there's no prayer you need to pray. There's no mantra you need to repeat. You simply call out and ask the Lord. To help you acknowledge your own sinfulness. To repent and turn from that sin and place your trust in Him. And He's faithful and just, as we've already read, to give you righteousness. That which you need. To cleanse you from your sin. If that's you this morning, then in this time, simply call out to the Lord and ask for Him to save you. And as you do so, we want to encourage you at the conclusion of our service, please come and tell us about the Lord's work in your life. But maybe you're a Christian here this morning. and Maybe your wrestle has not been whether or not you're saved. It's been, you've lost your boldness. You've recognized your shame to the gospel. Friends, there's, there's even no shame for your shame. There is but sweet grace and opportunity for you to repent and fall more deeply in love with the Lord Jesus and be a bold proclaimer of the gospel. And you want to see a world change. You get believers who are not ashamed of the gospel boldly proclaiming it. It's, you know why I know that? It's been done before. I've seen it in history. We've had two great awakenings in our country, and they both started with men who were not ashamed of the gospel. May we be like them. Let's take a, a moment of silence as we prepare our hearts, and then we'll continue in the time of our Lord's Supper. pray that you would make us a people shameless about the gospel. You would make us a people delighted about the gospel with no fear of proclaiming it because it is such a sweet and perfect message for sinners like us. Lord, we do pray for those of us who may be here this morning who do not believe that you would grant us the gift of faith, that we would acknowledge our sinfulness before you, Repent of those sins, turn away from them, and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way 
that you spoke to this planet and said, let there be light. May you speak to the souls of men and women this morning and say, let there be light. That they would respond in faith and that you would make them shameless proclaimers of your gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we come to the time of the Lord's Supper, I simply want to read to you a question from the Heidelberg Catechism, one of my favorite catechisms. And that's a, that's a nerdy thing to say. I understand that. But um, question 81 just says, Who are to come to the table of the Lord? The answer is, Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Primarily, this is something for our church family. That means that we are shepherding over only those who are part of our membership. But if you know yourself to be a believer by faith, if you have trusted in the finished work of Christ, we we do invite you to partake as well. We just want to make that clear distinction. And so let's take some time uh, as we reflect over this word, as we respond to God's word this morning, as we prepare to take a supper.